0: All right. Good morning. Can you hear me? Is that too much? All right. I'll start talking. You start editing. (laughs) All right. Um, We'll be in John chapter 2 today. John chapter 2. We want to thank you for being here with us this morning. Um, And my family especially wants to thank you guys for uh, keeping us in your thoughts and prayers. People keep asking us, you know, how, how's the house search going? You know, have you found anything yet? And and people now have started to apologize. You know, sorry to ask again, but hey, you don't have to apologize. Um, it's encouraging to us because we know you guys are thinking about us. You're praying for us as we go through this house hunt search. And so, um, so thank you for those prayers. Um, and please continue to pray for us in that way. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, as you're turning there, there's a television show, um, maybe you've seen it, it's a television show called Hoarders, all right, and in this television show, the plot behind this show is that there are people out there that just like to collect stuff, right, there's, um, they just uh, collect stuff, it's a lot of stuff, on the show they label this as some sort of mental disorder or disease or an addiction, so these people have this struggle, And this habit of hoarding or collecting stuff and are unable to throw things away. They're unable to give things up. They can't have a yard sale and just get rid of their knickknacks or things like that. It's just they just have to keep it because, you know, someday it might come in handy. You know, we might use this in the future, right? You know, maybe there's some of you out there, okay? Okay. But for, for these people in this TV show, uh, they just, they will just continue to collect stuff like tools, clothes, toys, wrapping paper, scrap metal, whatever. They need, they need, when they collect all this stuff, they need somewhere to put it, right? And maybe you're like me and you usually start with the shed out back, right? So you start moving stuff into the shed that might be used later. Well, for these people, you know, the shed fills up. And so then they got to start keeping it in the garage, right? And then as the garage fills up, you've got to start storing it in the basement. And before you know it, these for these people, their house gets so cluttered that it's covering the kitchen table, it's taking up two out of three seats on the living room couch, it's taking up the bedroom, and there's there's paths. I mean, they show these pe- these people's houses, and there's just a path for you to get through. That's all you can do to get through the house. Um, before you know it, the stuff that they have collected is everywhere and it makes the everyday function and use of the house impossible, even impossible to live in. And so, where the TV show comes into play is they show up when these people are at the end of their rope, right? Most of them are facing some sort of crisis. This proclivity to collect stuff has Put them on the verge of losing either a spouse or a family member who just they just can't put up with this anymore, or some were facing jail time because their yard was so littered um, that the 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 local authorities got involved and said, "Hey, you got to clean this up, or jail time's coming." Or even for one one family we watched this week. Um, they lost their children because there, there, there was, it was unsanitary. It was unsafe for the kids to be in the house. And so the kids were temporarily removed from the home and they were permanent, facing permanently losing their children. And so this habit has taken over their life so much that their house is no longer a home, but more of a storage facility. And with the house no longer being able to function as it is intended, as its intended purpose as a home, even greater problems were created in in the relationships of the family. Well, today we're going to encounter a similar problem, but on a spiritual sense, as Jesus enters the temple in Jerusalem and discovers a problem there. So let's read John chapter 2. We're beginning with verse 13. And I'll read down through verse 22. John writes this in John 2, verse 13. He says, The Passover of the... Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you today um, humbled that you allow us to come here to worship you. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, that we can look into it so that we can know who you are, so that we can know who we are in your eyes lord and so as we look into your word today lord please help me to be clear and precise in in my words but lord let your spirit move in in applying this and bringing this to life in our lives today father we thank you so much again for the opportunity to worship you here we pray all this in your name amen so my plan this morning is just to walk through this passage this story about Jesus and talk through some of the details And then just bring some quick application at the end. So let's start at verse 13. It starts by saying Jesus Jesus coming up to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. So now let's just review what we know about Scripture and about uh, the Passover. The Passover festival celebrated the deliverance of Israel from bondage of who? Who who were they slaves to? To Egypt. That's right. And if you recall from the book of Exodus that when the people of Israel were slaves in Egypt, God came to their rescue. When Pharaoh refused to let them go, God sent plagues that devastated Egypt, the final plague being that of the death angel. And so as the death angel came over the land to destroy all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the only way a family could escape this fate was if they smeared the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And the, the the angel would pass over that household and the firstborn would be saved from death. And so out through the land of Egypt, there was the great death of the firstborn of the Egyptians, including the son of Pharaoh. And by now, Pharaoh had had enough. And he says, okay, get, get your people out of here, Moses. Take your people out. So in this way, God delivered his people from their bondage, from their slavery. And this annual celebration called Passover was to celebrate what God had done. And so we could probably find some similarities between our celebration of the 4th of July, how we celebrate our Independence Day. Well, for Israel, it was the Passover. So God commanded Israel, remember this day so that future generations would know what God had done and so that you would always remember what God has done when he freed you from slavery in Egypt. And so every year they would celebrate Passover. And this was, it was, this was a massive event for them. Um, people from all uh, from far and wide would come to celebrate Passover. Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, would sa- said that sometimes even entire villages would just you know basically pick up and come to Jerusalem for to celebrate the Passover. And Jews from all over the Roman Empire would travel back to Jerusalem to celebrate this Passover and so it's estimated that the city sometimes swelled to like three times its normal size so it the estimates of... 25 to 50,000 normal residents swelled to about 75 to 150,000 residents. So, I mean, this is just a massive celebration. And so here we find in verse 13 that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate God's deliverance and redemption. And we see that in the beginning of verse 14, he comes to the temple. Now, the temple, of course, was the Jewish center of worship. It was the vast complex on the northeastern side of the city. It actually took up one-sixth of the entire city of Jerusalem. It was this giant complex. It it encompassed nearly 1.5 million square feet. So once you enter this massive wall around the temple complex, you come into the court, several courts, several different court areas. The first one being the court of the Gentiles. And so if you were a believer in God, but not an Israelite, not Jewish, you could come to God's temple in Israel, and you could worship God. And there is this special court, the court of the Gentiles, and that's where you could come to worship God. And then once you get in in there, there's another complex in there, the temple. You have the temple proper. You have several other courts, the court of the Israelite women, the court of Israelite men, the court of the priests, the altar for sacrifices, and all these other things that, that were a part of the worship of God here at the temple. But if you were a Gentile, you could go no further inside than the Gentile court. That's as close as you could get to the sanctuary. It, the place The place that was designated as the focal point of the relationship between God and man. So at the very time, Passover, the very time that God's people were to be celebrating his deliverance of them out of slavery... In the very place that was built as the worship center for this great and amazing God, Jesus walks in, and what does he find? Well, in verse 14, it tells us, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. Now, when we think... What? Why on earth would this stuff even be going on? Okay, so what is the point of this? So imagine if you are a, a Jewish traveler, that you're traveling for Passover, you're traveling miles, you know, a couple of days to get to Jerusalem to worship God and during Passover, um, and you're traveling a long distance... Well, the last thing you probably want to do is bring some, uh, a, an ox along or a sheep along with you, right? Because you got to feed it along the way. You know, you could get robbed and it could get stolen or, or something could happen along the way. And so taking a sheep on a two, or two, three, or four day journey, probably not ideal, right? And the same with some of these travelers coming from different areas, they might have foreign coins. All right. And so exchanging money, that's probably a pretty good, pretty good idea when you get there. And so being able to buy a sacrifice when you get there, being able to exchange your money, um, these are all good ideas. And at one time, booths had been set up on the Mount of Olives, which was just across the valley of Jerusalem, um, for these things to be done, so that travelers, as they approached Jerusalem, could exchange their coins to, to pay the temple tax, to donate to the temple, so that they could buy a sacrifice to sacrifice for their sins, and this was done on the Mount of Olives. But by Jesus' day, these things had been moved inside the temple walls into the court of the Gentiles, and this is what Jesus walks into. Now, last week, we talked through this passage with the teenagers in youth group, and we did a little contest. Uh, well, not really a contest. We just did a, a little experiment. So I asked them, okay, how many of you like to, re, you know, how many of you can study when there's a lot of noise going on around you? You know, do your homework, and or how many of you can read with a lot of noise going on around? You? And not many, you know, not many said, "Hey, I'm able to do that." And so what we did actually was we, we had a little contest. We found out who was the best moor, the best um, sheep bar, you know, the best one that could make a pigeon noise, um, and we assigned each each student. Um, a noise. Um, we also assigned several students uh, conversations because, of course, conversations would be going on. So we found out, hey, who likes to talk the most, all right? And so you're just supposed to you know, have a little conversation. And then we had some coins that were there that we could jingle and make some money. And so for 30 seconds, we set a 30-second timer, and they all did their thing. There was mooing, there was buying, There was somebody, I forget who it was. Somebody did a pretty good pigeon. But, um, and then there were people chatting, and then there were coins and we just did that noise for and did that noise for 30 seconds. And then we sat back and said, "Okay, how many of you think you could sit down and read a book while that's going on?" All right, how many of you think that you could sit down and and study your homework while that's going on? How many of you think you could sit down and and worship God while that's going on? And this is what Jesus is coming into the temple and seeing. It's not just the the fact that they're there, but the noise, the distraction, the chaos, the clutter, if you will, inside of the temple. And so this is what Jesus walks in and observes, but he doesn't just observe. Let's look at what Jesus does. How does he react? Verse 15 says this. It says, "...and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables." And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what's, what's going on here? So, so how are we, how are we to view this? You know, some people might think, well, Jesus lost his temper, but it was for a good cause. So, so it's okay. You can do that as well. Or, or Jesus got violent, so he wasn't actually a perfect person. He had fits of violence. How are we supposed to understand these actions that Jesus does here? What are we supposed to make? Is he someone who is out of control, anger, and violent? Let me, let me read to you what one Bible scholar says about this. He says, whether the whip that Jesus made was made of rushes that the, the stuff used for the bedding of the animals or a piece of rope, he says it was hardly a weapon that would have frightened those who were profiting profiting from the business. These merchants were not unaware of the improperness of using the temple court as a place of commerce. The righteous indignation of Jesus's arm Jesus armed with a whip was all that was necessary to put them to flight. It is noteworthy that while Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers, scattered their coins on the ground, he did not set the doves free. But told their owners to remove them from the court. Jesus did not destroy the merchandise, merchant's property, but instead took appropriate action to remove both seller and merchandise from the temple. And so it wasn't that Jesus was just out of control, out, you know, rage, but he was he was um, moving these things along. You know, can you imagine? Could you imagine trying to move a cow uh, without some sort of whip? I mean, how hard would you have to push to get that thing going? And so to move the animals along, that's, that's probably what he had the whip for. And it says, you know, he tells the people, the people with the pigeons, he doesn't just go in there and like free all the pigeons. He's like, get these things out of here. And it doesn't seem like it was too much of a commotion because on the opposite side of the temple complex, there was a Roman garrison. So if things would have gotten too riled up, too crazy, uh, you would have expected some guards to come along. But John recalls Um, here in verse, verse 17, John recalls that this event did trigger in the disciples' minds the scripture from Psalm 69 that says, The zeal for your house will consume me. It was Jesus' intense passion for God's house of worship that drove him to do this. Now, occasionally when when I get tired of house hunting, um, which which happens sometimes, um, when I get tired of house hunting for houses in my price range, um, occasionally I'll get on Zillow and kind of expand that search, right? You know, who, who doesn't like to do that? Let, let's see what else is out there a little bit more expensive or maybe a little bit further away. And so I was doing this one day, and I came across this interesting house. Uh, it's located south of Pittsburgh, And they're asking $2.4 million. So it's a little out of our price range, a little further than I want to commute. But um, the thing that struck me about this four-bedroom, four-and-a-half-bath house that's nearly 15,000 square feet was that before this was a house, it was Perry County Elementary School. So somebody took a school and bought it. I don't know, maybe, maybe the school outgrew its that school, and so they had to build a new one or, or whatever might happen, but somebody bought it and turned it into a four-bedroom house, right? Here you have this, this place that was dedicated to learning, to education, to preparing the future generations of how many, how many thousands of kids probably went through that school on their way to getting great jobs and things like that, and so it's this, this institution that was for, for kids for learning, and they turned it into a house, now I understand. I mean, maybe, maybe you know, they, like I said, they grew out of it. They grew, you know, it wasn't like they intentionally, like, ah, we don't want this to be a school anymore. We're going to buy it, build a house. But imagine now how much more then it is when Jesus walks into the temple, the place that was made to be the center of worship of the Almighty God, the Deliverer, the Redeemer, the one who freed them from slavery. And it is being used as a marketplace to sell animals for sacrifices and to exchange money for giving. All which were, of course, a part of worship. That's where Jesus' zeal comes in and is real. Jesus' zeal for unhindered worship of God. That's what he wants, especially in the place designated for nothing but worship. Do you get that sense? Do you understand that, that this this was what drove Jesus? This is something reserved for the worship of God, and it's being used for something else. And so after Jesus does this, it does get the attention of some people. Uh, verse 18 says this it says, So the Jews saw him, or said to him, sorry, what sign do you show us for doing these things? So after Jesus zealously drove these merchants out and their merchandise out of the temple, these events caught someone's attention, the attention of the Jews. Now, John often used the term the Jews to talk about the religious leaders of Israel. And so these were probably the religious leaders, those that were in charge of the temple, those that were in charge of what was going on inside the temple. And they come to Jesus and they ask him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Or, in other terms, what do you think you're doing? Who gave you the right to come in here and do this? And so they're basically challenging him and saying, Hey, where do you get the authority to do what you think you're doing? Or to do what you are doing? You know, in John's gospel, what you'll find often is John will tell you a story about an event in Jesus' life of a conversation or interaction that he has with someone and those in the story end up having to make a choice. You can either believe Jesus or you can reject him. And John tells us at the end of his book, he says this in John 20, verse 30 and 31, he said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John wants his readers to believe that throughout his book he gives you, he wants his readers to believe, and throughout his book he gives you opportunities to do so as you read through the characters in the story. So here we find the authorities challenging Jesus, saying, Give us a sign, show us, show us something that that gives you the, the, the right to be here, the right to do this. Uh, how does Jesus respond? In verse 19, he says destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has been taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up again in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So early on in Jesus' ministry, here we are in chapter 2 of John, Jesus knows why he's there. His mission is clear. He has come to die and to be raised to life again. And so he said to them, "Here is your sign: destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." And of course, this went right over their heads. And you know what? It might actually go right over our heads if it wasn't for John giving us verse twenty-one that says, "But he was speaking about the temple of his body." And so the Jewish leaders missed this inside information and respond with, "How long it has taken for the temple to be built?" and their disbelief they they say it took it took 46 years to build this temple and you think you're going to build it up again in three days but the big truth that john wants to get across is that jesus body was the temple that he was speaking of and that is significant because jesus has come to replace the temple the temple that had taken 46 years to build was only temporary it was always only ever to point forward to the true temple, the true way of worship through Jesus Christ. The one that would die for their sins of the world, the one that would be raised to life, and that would intercede for us between God. All these things that would take place in the temple, so all the sacrifices, all the prayer, all the worship, everything that went on inside the temple was all pointing forward to Jesus' coming. And there would be great significance here even for John's original writers because John was writing after 70 A.D. And in 70 A.D., the Romans got tired of the Jews and their constant rebellion and constant revolt. And so the Jews revolted once again saying, we don't want Rome to be in charge. And Rome came in and Rome destroyed Jerusalem and they completely destroyed the temple. And so to John's original audience of of Jews, and and believing Gentiles who are probably just struck down by everything that has happened in Jerusalem and to the temple. And John here is saying, Hey, Jesus is the true temple. You are still we are still able to worship God, because Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the new center of worship. And so in verse twenty two, we are Read this. It says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So let me just say this quick about verses 17 and verses 22. Verses 17 was when the disciples remembered the psalm and said, The zeal for my house has consumed me. And here in verse 22, again, the disciples remembered What Jesus had said, they remembered the scripture and believed what Jesus had said. And what we see with the disciples is that the more time that they spent with Jesus, the more they see scripture connect to life. The more time that they spent with Jesus, as we read through even the Gospel of John, the more time they spent with Jesus, the more they see scripture connect to their life. And it's true for us too. The more time you spend in God's Word, the more time you spend in prayer, the time you spend with Jesus, the more you will see the Word of God come alive right before your eyes. Like the disciples, you will see how the Scripture illuminates and lives itself out in life as we follow Jesus. But we have to be in His Word. We have to know His Word. So let me, as we walk, now that we walk through this story, let me just give you a few points of application. What can we take away from this story in John that John is recounting to us that John, the story that John wants us to know, right? John considers this story important because he has it in his book. Well, first of all, let's remember this. It's an obvious one that this is all about Jesus, right? Jesus is the center of worship. If you do not know Jesus, you cannot worship God. Jesus says in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is irony in this passage that the Jewish leaders miss. And it's, it, it's funny because John likes to use irony um, so much that the theologians have come up with a term called Johannine, uh, Johannine Irony. All right. He just he uses it a lot. He likes to use irony. So if you're a person that likes irony, uh, you'd like reading through the book of of John. Um, John likes to use irony and he does it here. The irony in this passage is that the Jewish leaders missed as as they were trying to protect and defend their physical temple. Remember that place of worship where God and man meet standing before them was God in the flesh. Standing before them was the true temple. And so as they're looking at Jesus and saying, you have no authority in this place, here's the guy who owns the place. I mean, John John loves to rub that irony in. They could meet with him in person right there. We also can now directly meet with God through Jesus Christ, our mediator. You don't have to be inside a church to worship God, although we appreciate you coming Sunday mornings. Um, you don't have to be in a church to worship God. You don't have to be in a cathedral or a chapel to make sure that your prayers are heard. We can go directly to God because of Jesus. So let's not miss how much of this passage is about Jesus. A second point of application is this. Jesus is zealous for unhindered, uncluttered worship. So if you're like me, when you first read through this passage, you're probably cheering Jesus on, right? You're like, go get him, yeah, this is, this is a good thing. Go, go after him. Um, you tell these guys what's going on. Clear this place out. And if someone were to ask you whose side you would be on and if you were on Jesus' and the disciples' side or the religious rulers' side, most of us would probably not hesitate to say, well, I'm with Jesus here, right? But let's take a step back. And look at our center of worship, that is our hearts. And let's ask ourselves, are there things that have crowded into this place reserved for worshiping God that have cluttered up that worship that, have, that has invaded the space so that worship is difficult or impossible? What might some of these things be? Maybe, maybe our concern for financial security or the, job, the, the search for a job. Uh, My opinion on the current political climate, right, or on the climate, climate, Uh, my children's happiness or their education or a whole host of other things can clutter my heart reserved for worship. How do I know if these things are crowding my heart? A simple diagnostic question would be this. (coughs) What distracts me from worship? Where does my mind and heart go when I should be worshiping God? And I'm not talking about the simple distractions, you know, what's going on outside. You know, in the, in the church that uh, I was an assistant pastor at before, we had two huge windows right up here. And you could tell when a flock of geese would go by because everybody's eyes would go from here <laughs> across there, right? That's not that's not the distraction that I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the distraction that when, you know, somebody's phone goes clunk, you know, we kind of all turn around, who's, whose phone just fell to the floor or Bible, um, <laughs> But not those distractions. all right I'm talking about the distractions that continually steals my attention when I'm called to worship God. And not just talking about Sunday morning, but Monday when I should be worshiping God and Tuesday and Wednesday and all the way through Saturday, what constantly distracts or hinders me from sitting down with my Bible and worshiping God and from taking time to pray and meditate. So do you want to hear one of mine? You probably do. Um, so as I was sitting down, meditating on this passage this week, trying to to uh, work through this sermon, um, I was trying to figure out, okay, wh- what are some of mine? What are some of the things that might be cluttering my heart? Um, and one that came to mind pretty quickly is uh, um, our house search, right? Um, so I, I just, because I remember a few weeks ago, sitting in the back during Pastor Todd's sermon. Okay? Um, I try not to get in too much trouble here, but I was sitting in the back, listening to Pastor Todd's sermon, and all of a sudden, the thought came into my mind, I wonder what's going to come, you know, what's coming on the market this week, I wonder if there is going to be anything coming on the market this week, you know, I mean, what if what if everything is all of a sudden out of our price range, and, and we can't find a house, and so this trail goes on for about 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, I'm sitting in church, I'm supposed to be listening. All right. And it's not just and it wasn't just Sunday morning for me. I could find myself sitting down with my Bible during the week and be reading through the Bible and all of a sudden my mind would go there. And I'd be like, "Oh man, what did I just read?" All right. Or in the middle of a prayer. It's like all of a sudden, "Jesus, help us to find a house. Is there going to be a house this week?" What's... And and I can see my mind and my heart being distracted from worship because of something, because of this house search. Now, now now, let me make this clear. It's not, these are not bad things, all right? A house search is important, all right? My kid's education is important. My kid's happiness is also important to me. You know, financial security, those, these are important. These are good things. Um, what was going on in the temple? The service that was provided through the money changers and those, an, those selling animals, it wasn't wrong, even though some of them were taking absorbent amounts and ripping people off. The fact that they were exchanging money and selling sacrificial animals, that, that wasn't a wrong thing. But these things were, were, the problem was that they had been moved into the prominent place, the place of worship. So that worship, the highest good and intended purpose, was stifled. So, now that we can see it, the things that are not necessarily bad, but they have become space invaders and have crowded our worship center, the temple of our heart. Here comes Jesus, zealous for true and unhindered worship, and he is ready to clean house. So here's the hard question. Now whose side are you on? Now whose side am I on? All right? My house search is important to me. All right? Am I willing to say, Jesus, move that out, move that into the... I'm not saying it needs to be gone. All right? The last thing my brother wants to hear is that we're giving up on looking for a house. <laughs> um, but it, move that out of this important place that, that's, that's crowding my worship, that... Is also, another indicator is it's causing me anxiety, it causes me stress, it causes me um, fear and worry. Another indicator that it's gotten too close, that it's crowded my worship center. And so Jesus is coming now, and he's ready to clear out, which side am I on? Which side are you on? Are you with Jesus and the disciples and say, yeah, clean this out. Put this in its proper place clean it out so that I can worship you? Or are you with the religious leaders saying, no, I like that here. What, what authority do you have to move this out? What authority do you have to, to be here? Uh, one of the truly sad parts about this story in John is that a few years later, Jesus would walk into the temple again and find the same thing hindering worship. Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us the story of Jesus cleaning out the temple once more. They didn't want him there. They didn't want him rearranging their priorities, decluttering their place of worship. How about you? All right, and so in conclusion, let me just bring it back to my opening illustration. In each episode of Hoarders, they show you the dire situation of the person doing the hoarding. So like I said, some faced jail time, some faced losing a spouse or a loved one, some faced losing their kids permanently, and the person that does the hoarding is always broken up about this. Most of them have an ultimatum before them that said, get this taken care of in a week or three days, or there's usually a timeline, and they say, get this taken care of or these consequences are coming. And every one of them is there saying they want to do it, but it's impossible in just a few days. And they're in great despair. But in each episode, the, the TV creators let you know that there is a crew that they bring in to those people at that house and say, this crew can clear this house out in the allotted time, the days that you need to have it cleaned up. This, we, can, we can take care of all this problem that you have here the question is for them is is the person willing to let them now jesus doesn't need a crew and he is ready and we're willing to clean out the clutter from the place of worship your heart so that true real worship can take place unhindered undistracted uncluttered so the question for us today is are we willing to let him let's go to the lord in prayer